Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we turn to you. Speak to us through these words that you've revealed. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I know we don't always say this, but if you have a Bible, you can open it to John chapter 20. That's what I'm going to be preaching out of. We are one week into Eastertide, and we celebrated, didn't we? We remembered and we celebrated last weekend. And as Dave said, it's just beginning. We're going to go on celebrating throughout Eastertide. And rightly so. Easter is the height of our year as Christians. It's the climax of our calendar. It is the pinnacle of the story that God has written so far. And it is the biggest day of the year for our church. I say day, I mean like Saturday noon to Sunday noon. Christmas was not the biggest day for our church this past year, though I have shared how much I love Christmas. Hiring a new rector was not the biggest day of the year for this church, though I love the new rector. (laughs) Great choice. A huge influx of new members would not be the biggest day in our year, though I've loved being in the recent foundations class and getting to know some new people. As good as these things are, frankly, they cannot hold a candle to the good news of Christ risen from the dead. And our remembering, our celebrating, especially on Holy Saturday at our vigil, we really go out of our way to engage our whole selves in that service. Not just our minds, it's not just about thinking right thoughts about the resurrection, not just our spirits, but it is an embodied celebration, a really physical celebration. Because we are more than brains on a stick, as Jamie Smith has said. We are embodied creatures who remember and celebrate with more than just our minds. And last weekend, we did a lot more than a Presbyterian hallelujah. I can make this joke because I was raised Presbyterian. I love Presbyterians. I bless them. My dad is a Presbyterian pastor. And I'm going to tweak his joke just a little bit here. See, he's a pastor in the South, and he likes to talk about churches where people say, amen, hallelujah, glory, even during a sermon. We could use a little bit more of that here. Um, And he likes to say that a Presbyterian hallelujah goes like this. Hmm. (laughs) So we did more than a Presbyterian hallelujah last weekend, I'm glad to say. Case in point. I have never heard Church of the Cross in my four and a half years here clap to the music like we did at the vigil. Collectively and individually, we wanted our whole selves, not just our minds, not just our spirits, but our bodies participating in that celebration. And so we did. We had more instruments. There were more people blowing into horns and beating on drums. 
and there were more voices practiced and harmonizing up here and in the choir. Well done, choir. I loved the choir. And we added our voices, too, in responses and in the music. We all actually took ourselves down this aisle and outside. Some of us got very wet. We did that to light the Christ candle and to process back in behind it. And then we held our own candle. We saw its flame. We smelled its fire. We worried about children's hair. People wrote poems. People wrote new music. We got to hear it. We got to see a reading from the book of Genesis read to us in American Sign Language, beautifully projected onto the wall in her shadow by Rachel. It was awesome. We beheld visual art, collage art, graphic art made by the hands of our fellow parishioners. On Friday, we physically walked around the perimeter of this sanctuary to spend time with the Stations of the Cross, original artwork given to this congregation. We witnessed the carrying of a wooden cross down the aisle, and then in the dark, as if a secret, it was decorated by all kinds of beautiful flowers, you see it here, by Ashley, so that when the lights came on, it was as if the cross had bloomed. Some of us changed clothes in this service. We felt the heavy denim jacket fall off and the light, colorful clothes underneath. We saw actual water poured over five screaming babies. We saw their wet heads. We kissed their wet heads. And then all the usual and beautiful embodied movements of our worship. We stood up. We sat down. We knelt. We bowed. We crossed ourselves. We lifted hands. We came forward to receive actual food and drink that we held, we smelled, we tasted, we swallowed, we digested. And then our feasts and all the delights and flavors of those, they've really just begun. So why? Why all this effort? Why every sense addressed and welcomed? to participate in these three holy days and this whole season? Well, because of what we are remembering and celebrating, the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. Paul writes to an early church in Greece, in Corinth, if Christ has not been raised, so he's saying it in the negative, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. The most to be pitied if he didn't rise. A modern poet says it a little differently, John Updike. I wish I could read you the whole thing, but it's called Seven Stanzas of Easter, so you know how long it is. I'm just gonna read you the first stanza. Listen carefully, he says, make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's disillusion did not reverse, 
the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. If he didn't rise, what are we doing here? Go home. Go find a good brunch place. This is ridiculous. We should be mocked. We should be pitied. But if he did, if he did take upon himself all wickedness, all sin, all shame, rebellion, injustice, suffering, evil, even death itself, if he took it all, carried it, let, him pi- let it pile up on him and even kill him, and then buried it, took it to the grave, finished it, conquered it, and then offers this to us, the perpetrators, the offenders. He offers us this risen reality where sin no longer has dominion and death no longer has victory. Then hallelujah, we better celebrate. We must. And with our whole selves, all our hopes we set on the risen Christ. Will you say it with me? All our hopes we set on the risen Christ. Whew. Given all that, why is it that the second Sunday of Easter, our lectionary, this place where we get these readings from, and many Christians all over the world are hearing the same readings this morning, why would it be in John's Gospel, chapter 20, where the disciple Thomas, one of the 12, is of course given the moniker Doubting Thomas? We're only a week in, and we're already hearing about somebody doubting the physical resurrection. I believe we're hearing this story today because, first of all, it's chronological. (laughs) This is actually what happened right after the resurrection, and John is recording it. And this adds such credibility to his account. You know, if you were trying to make up a story about some guy coming back to life from the dead and start a revolution around it or something, you would definitely want to make sure all the people closest to him were convinced, 100% convinced. You would not want to record a close friend of that person doubting, unless that is exactly what happened. So it's chronological that we're reading it right now. It adds to the credibility. But we are also hearing of Thomas doubting on the second Sunday of Easter because, friends, the Christian faith is realistic, not triumphalistic. A week or so after the greatest event in human history and a disciple doubts. Thomas has heard an eyewitness account from Mary Magdalene from all the other disciples, that they've seen Jesus, even touched him. Plus, Jesus himself had warned Thomas with all the disciples more than once that he would suffer, that he would die, and that he would be raised on the third day. So Thomas had a lot of good reasons to believe, but he doubts. This is such a hospitable passage for us in our doubts. 
There will be Easter Sundays and Easter tides where you are swept up in the hallelujah of it all. God meets you there, encourages your heart, fills you with joy and confidence in Jesus, in what he's done, and in what he will do. But you will likely know Easter Sundays and Easter tides where you hear all the testimony, you can see everybody's all jazzed, but your heart is cold and your doubts loom large. So if that's you this Easter, or even if that will be you in a future Easter, will you let John 20 speak to you? Even better, will you let Jesus in John 20 speak to you? Not just to Thomas, but to you. You see, Jesus knew exactly what Thomas was thinking. He knew exactly what Thomas had said to the other disciples. Unless I put my finger in the nail marks, unless I put my hand in his side where that sword pierced him, I'm not going to believe unless I see it and touch him with my own eyes. Jesus knew exactly what Thomas had said. Jesus knew when and how Thomas had fallen asleep back in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus so needed his friends. Jesus knew exactly when Thomas ran for his life, when the soldiers and their clubs and their swords arrived. Jesus knew where Thomas hid out to save his own skin during Jesus's trial. When Jesus needed reliable witnesses to speak on his behalf at the sham of a trial. Jesus knew how far away Thomas stood at his crucifixion or if he was even in sight. Jesus knew all of this, and yet, and yet, this is where I'm going to focus all the rest of this sermon. Given all of that, all that Jesus knew, all that Jesus had just accomplished in the flesh for Thomas and for us, how does he approach this man doubting? What does Jesus say to him? How many things might Jesus have wanted to say? How many things would have been appropriate for Jesus to say? Where were you? How could you? But no, the first word out of the mouth of Jesus was peace. Peace be with you. Three times in this little passage, Jesus declares peace. That is what he brings back from the grave. Peace. And he gives it to Thomas and he offers it to you. Peace. In your doubts, in your questions, into your cold heart or into your warm, celebratory heart. Jesus comes to us, offering us his peace. He also comes to Thomas and to us, attentive. He comes in a personal way, in a uniquely personal way. If you look at John 20, and what Thomas says to the other disciples, which was so well read by Pete, he emphasized all the right parts. 
If you look at what Thomas says in the particulars, Thomas mentions his own finger, putting it in the nail marks, and he mentions his hand, putting it into Jesus' side. This painting by Caravaggio gives you a good sense of what's going on here. The incredulity of St. Thomas. Thomas mentions these very particulars, his finger and his hand. And when Jesus arrives, he almost quotes Thomas right back to him. He says, your finger, put it here in the nail marks. Your hand, put it here on my side. As if to say, I was listening, Thomas. I'm attentive. I'm generous to respond. So let's turn that back on ourselves. How is Jesus speaking personally to you? In what particulars can you see how attentive he is to you? Going even a bit further, how is he attending to your body specifically? I know this kind of question can make people nervous or it seems dangerous to ask, but we are not hearing the fullness of the gospel if we make such a big deal of Jesus's resurrection, his physical resurrection, and we are banking on absolutely trusting for our own physical resurrection. If we affirm Jesus is not just about forgiving sins, but about bringing us all into a full, healed, forgiven, physical, eternal life, and with the rest of creation too. So if we make such a big deal of Jesus' resurrection, rightly so, we are trusting for our own resurrection, but we have no sense of what these bodies are about now and God's own care for them, God's attentive presence towards them, we're not hearing the big story. We're not getting what Jesus reveals here to Thomas. He invites Thomas to get physically involved in the reality of the resurrection. Did you hear that? He invites Thomas to get physically involved in the reality of the resurrection. I'm not saying that Thomas touched him and then somehow magically was himself in his own resurrected body, but that Jesus did not keep him at arm's length and say, okay, that's close enough. You, that's enough. You can believe from over there. No, he said, come close, Thomas. Touch this real body with your own body and your own sense of touch, Thomas. Participate in my resurrection, in a limited way, granted. But Thomas's body gets to take part. So how is your body, my body, included in this resurrection reality that is already here, but not yet fully here? Ask yourself this, how is Jesus attentive to your aches and pains. How is Jesus attentive to your physical food appetite? How is he attentive to your exercise obsession? 
How is he attentive to your sexual appetite and activity? How is Jesus attentive to your pregnancy or the fact that you're not pregnant? How is he attentive to your chronic pain or a disease that you live with or your aging body, your accumulation of wrinkles and pounds and gray hair? How is he attentive to each breath you take even now? Attentive to each cell and molecule and amino acid, as the poem said, doing their thing. How is it that we are, for the most part, here in our right minds, in safety, in this sanctuary, beauty around every corner, if you have eyes to see it, with the joys of human touch from our friends, from our children, from our parents, from our spouse, How is Jesus attentive to you in spring, where life is returning to flowers, to trees, to animals, to us? It's a little more hospitable to humans out in Boston this time of year. And friends, please don't miss this. We will soon walk forward with our physical selves. We will take in bread and wine we have been welcomed to participate in the resurrection life of Jesus. The good news is his resurrection, yes, that is the first fruits. Our resurrection, yes, that will be the harvest. But also an experience of his resurrection life, even now, even in our physical bodies. This interaction with Thomas reveals how attentive Jesus is. He comes with peace. He attends to the particulars of you and your story and even your body and responds generously. And the last thing I want to name for us in this passage that Jesus does, that Jesus offers, he also says plainly, stop doubting and believe. That is what he says about his physical resurrection. That is exactly what some people in this room need to hear this morning. Simple as that. Stop doubting and believe. That doesn't nullify the hospitality in this passage that I mentioned earlier, how Jesus is hospitable to Thomas's doubts. He doesn't come to him with disappointment. We don't see Jesus coming to Thomas like, Okay, Thomas, I'm back. I'm coming back again. You weren't here the first time. I've already told you. Mary told you. Peter told you. John told you. All the miracles before that. And here I am in person talking to you. Come on, man. What is wrong with you? That's not what I'm suggesting at all. And I don't think that's what we see here. Rather, Jesus knows what is in each person. John says so back in chapter 2. Jesus knows when doubt becomes not a stepping stone to a more robust faith, but a way of life, a trap, a lame excuse to be your own God. And then we need to hear Jesus say, stop doubting and believe. The testimonies 
The testimonies are trustworthy. The testimonies are trustworthy. Jesus' personal and physical attentiveness to you, it's real. And the peace, his resurrection peace that he offers to you, take him up on it. Receive it. Amen.